Whistleblowers have played a critical role in policy changes at the Veterans Affairs Department over the years, but it comes at a cost for many of them. Some face demotions, workplace hostility, etc. There are mechanisms in place to protect them from being punished for speaking up, but how have they performed? The Government Accountability Office recently took a look at whistleblower retaliation cases at VA. To learn more about what they found, I spoke with Thomas Costa, a director in GAO's Education, Workforce and Income Security team. First, this is an interim report, so we're we're still doing ongoing work. Uh, but this report reported on the sort of the, the statistics around uh, the Office of Special Counsel investigations of whistleblower retaliation. Uh, the Office of Special Counsel is an independent agency that is specifically tasked with investigating whistleblower protections, as well as some other prohibited personnel practices that people might you know, run afoul of. Uh, and the second objective was looking at how the Department of Veterans Affairs resolves allegations of whistleblower retaliation through settlement agreements. And as I mentioned, this work is still ongoing. Gotcha. Okay. And so let's get into some of those statistics. Um, What percentage of cases uh, involved whistleblower retaliation and what did you find when questioning the OSC? Yeah. So a majority of the OSC cases involving VA employees do involve whistleblower protection. So it's about a a little over two thirds. So 69% of cases involve uh, whistleblower protection. And those cases took a median of 94 days to resolve. Uh, but if it was a favorable decision for the employee, those cases took an a, a median of 391 days to resolve. So it's it's quite a bit longer if there's a full investigation. But what we found is that in a majority of cases, some 59% of the cases, the OSC found that it didn't have sufficient evidence to carry forward. And there's some other, you know, portions of those cases that were forwarded to other agencies and so forth. But uh, the majority of cases never actually make it through the entire process. Yeah, that difference between cases that resolved with a favorable, which favorable, not taking sides or anything, but that's just what it means when a complaint is warranted, it seems. Why, why 390 days compared to 94 days? Uh, is it just because there's just so much more evidence to analyze or did they um, mention any reason why those investigations tend to take longer? Yeah, I mean, it really is about the amount of evidence, right? So they're going to be interviewing more people. They're going to be getting that information. And so, you know, whenever they're they're looking at that, it's just going to take a longer period of time. But yeah, 391 days is, is, a, is a fairly lengthy period of time. Yeah. And as far as evidence, I imagine that it is mostly just all testimony from what the whistleblowers, co-workers or anybody who was a witness to potential retaliation. Is that the case? I believe it is. There is a lot of interviews with with people. I imagine there's also some some documentation. There might be emails or, or things like that that go around as well that people uh, have to share. So I, I imagine that also can, can be involved. But we didn't actually look yet at you know what sort of evidence goes into all those cases yet. I think we're going to look a little bit more into that as we carry forward with our work. Gotcha. And so VA has its own whistleblower uh, protection office. Um, what role do they play in all of this? Yeah, so the uh, VA has the OAWP, so that's their Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection, and they're an internal office. So when somebody uh, at the VA feels like they've been mistreated and uh, because they were a whistleblower, they can go internally to the OAWP, or they can go externally to the Office of Special Counsel, or they could also file a grievance with their with their uh, collective bargaining agreement with their union. But the OAWP was established uh, several years ago 
because there were a number of whistleblower cases, and they're charged with looking at misconduct by the senior executives within the VA. And so that is another avenue that people have to, to sort of get their grievance heard and addressed. OAWP is, can also work through the settlement process with people if there is a, a, an agreement that a settlement is necessary and, and to avoid longer litigation in courts and so forth. You know, I don't know if you did or not, but did you all look at what these settlements actually entail? Is it mostly, I mean, I imagine it's mostly financial stuff, but um, it, was there anything else that came about with that? And, you know, does the kind of settlement that is chosen affect which agency <laughs> interacted with it? Yeah. So we're, we're actually, I, I, unfortunately, we haven't gotten to that part yet. We are going to definitely get into that uh, with our ongoing work. Uh, but what we do know is that you know the VA can delegate responsibility up to a certain amount of money to to different levels of staff, right? So if it's a settlement that has a value of up to five thousand dollars, it can go, you know, to middle management. If it, ha- it goes up to a hundred thousand dollars, it has to go to more senior management and so forth. So there are levels in which that delegation of authority can work its way down. Um, but we haven't had a chance yet to really dig into what those settlements look like yet. Got it. And, you know, the OAWP, you mentioned it was created because of there were some pretty high profile whistleblower retaliations going on. And a lot of congressional pressure came from the creation of that office. Um, I'm just curious of what you can tell me since its creation, if its involvement in the whistleblower protection or if its involvement in whistleblower protections, you know, has been enough for um, the folks that created it. I mean, what, what is their footprint on this? So it, it's, it seems to be growing. I mean, they were only created in 2017. So I think, you know, we'll, we'll be looking more carefully at, at what their footprint really is as we move forward. Their first step is to look whether or not, and the same with the OSC, whether or not they actually have jurisdiction, whether this is a, a whistleblower case or it's something else that's going on, and then determine, and then going through the investigative process if they determine they do have jurisdiction and it's an appropriate case to then find make a determination about a settlement. So, you know, when they when they reach a settlement, it could be a, a host of things, right? It could be money. It could it could involve additional training for the person involved or whatever, too, depending on the severity and all, all that sort of things as well. But generally, like you said, it's going to involve some sort of financial restitution. And over all of this, we're, we're forgetting the focus on the whistleblowers themselves. Um, have you had a chance to speak to any of the folks involved in these cases yet or do you plan to? Yeah, we're we're hoping to to speak with a few whistleblowers as part of our ongoing work, um, and get more information about their experiences and how, you know, how this process worked for them, how it impacted them, both for the OSC side of it as well as the OAWP side of it. So, you know, was one working more effectively than the other in addressing their concerns or in the the speed in which they handled those concerns and those those sorts of questions. And taking a look at the complaints themselves, and I don't know if you've all looked into this yet or not, but if there are these this many whistleblowers within the VA, were they was it just pointing out, you know, simple managerial issues or was it, you know, pointing out other more serious things since you are talking about healthcare? I, I don't know that I can answer that that yet, right? We're going to hopefully get some more information as we we dig into it more, but you know, I think when you're looking at whistleblower cases, you're generally looking at fairly serious things, right? I mean, so those are cases where a person felt like there was an obvious misuse or a violation of law, gross mismanagement, gross waste of funds, abuse of authority, those sorts of things. So like not little things, right? Whistleblowing is generally for a big thing. And then that's when they brought that information to light, 
they felt like they were retaliated against. So they were demoted, they were fired or what, what have you. Um, and so, you know, this is an effort to try to protect those people a little bit more because I know that, you know, not just at the VA, but throughout the, the government, there's always been a challenge in trying to afford whistleblowers the kinds of protections that they that they need. Yeah, I imagine somebody's got to be pretty hurt if it takes 391 days to resolve it and they're still sticking in there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I guess the, the other thing that I would just mention is just that, you know, the the caseload that OSC is dealing with has shrunk over the last several years, which is interesting. And it's probably a result of COVID uh, and that people were you know, working from home more and that sort of thing. But in part, maybe because of that, the percentage of whistleblower cases has actually gone up. The number of overall cases is down, but the percentage of the total has gone up. And so that's something we hope to dig a little bit more into. The only other thing I would add is that, you know, the, the VA is is a really big agency. And so they they are the second largest agency after the Department of Defense and that they make up about a third of the OSC's cases which seems a little high, but they're, you know, part of that is probably because they're such a big agency. And at least anecdotally, we've heard that they, they do a decent job of notifying their staff at this point about what their, their options are if they are whistleblowers. Yeah, maybe it was harder to feel hostility from your boss via Zoom rather than in the workplace. <laughs> yeah, but we know it still happens, unfortunately. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> Thomas Costa is a director in the Government Accountability Office's Education, Workforce, and Income Security team. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. 
I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama, because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or 
maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that, you that's know? That's brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.